Jeremiah 33, 3. Call unto me and I will answer thee. God picks up the phone to our, to our benefits. God is always available. The problem is never His availability. The problem is our inability to call upon God when we're in trouble. I'll turn our Bibles to Psalm chapter 31. Psalm chapter 31, and we'll be reading verses 21 to 24. Psalm 31, verses 21 to 24. And if you have that, uh, join with me in standing. And let's read these uh, verses out loud together. So Psalm 31, 21 and 24. Let's begin. Blessed be the Lord, for He hath showed me His marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Nevertheless, thou heardest the voice of my supplications when I cried unto thee. O love the Lord, all ye his saints, for the Lord preserveth the faithful, and plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. You may now be seated. Thank you. Now who is, you know, who here tonight is familiar with the story of John Huss. John Huss. A couple of us. If you don't know his story, John Huss was a Catholic priest. But interestingly enough, John, John Huss opposed a lot of what the Catholic Church taught. He had the privilege of studying the Bible for himself, a privilege that we all have. And once he started studying the Bible a bit more, thanks so much, once he started study, studying the Bible for himself, he came to the realization that what the Bible teaches was very different from what the Roman Catholic Church practiced. There was a discrepancy between the scriptures and between what the Roman Catholic taught. So he started to preach against the errors of the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church was the majority at that time. What happens when you try to oppose the majority? Well, opposition will come. Persecution will come. John Huss, his opposition climaxed when he started to preach against the papacy. He started to preach against the Pope. That's a big thing. He started to preach against the, the selling of indulgences. Indulgences, they believe, will make it so that if you buy it, you don't have to face the punishment of your sins. What a way, a ticket, a way out of your, of your sins. No punishment. So he was preaching against these core, uh, core teachings of the Catholic Church. He emphasized the authority of the Bible. He emphasized that Jesus is the head of the church. And this resulted in him being captured. He was tricked. He was captured. And they were willing to let him go if they did one thing. If he did one thing. John Huss, if you recant, and if you change your mind about everything that you've taught, We'll let you go home tonight. John Huss, he knew what the Bible taught. He would not just recant and, and go away from the truth. He knew what, what God, wanted, God, God taught in His Word, so he refused. And we know what happens. He was burned at the stake. One of the most famous Christian martyrs is John Huss. A lot of us, we, our, our, our knowledge on John Huss ends with him dying on the stake. But there's more to it. John Huss himself obviously grew a following. There were a lot of people that, that, that 
agreed with what John Huss was preaching. And these followers were known as the Hussites. Not the most beautiful name, but that's what they were called, the Hussites. His followers, they continued on and expanded in his opposition to Roman Catholic teachings. To the point where the Pope pronounced four different crusades to completely eliminate this opposition. They didn't want the Hussites around. They wanted to eliminate the Hussites and they launched four crusades against the Hussites. But this powerful army, this powerful Roman army, they lost every single time. You might be thinking, the Hussites may, might have been legendary soldiers. The truth was, the Hussites were farmers, they were peasants, they were your average Joes. They were everyday children. There were children in their army. They were just normal men, normal women. And get this, they didn't even have proper weaponry. They didn't have swords. They didn't have bows. They had farming tools. They fought the Roman Catholic army with farming tools. And on top of this, this ragtag band of group, a group of, of soldiers, they didn't even agree with one another. Within the Hussites, there were multiple factions that had, they, they believed in certain different things. And so when they weren't fighting the Catholic army, they were fighting within themselves. So you might, we're looking at the situation here. How can these Hussites possibly stand a chance against one of the strongest armies? What made the difference? What made the difference was not that they had military experience or that they had military acumen. They were being led by a man named John Ziska. If you study military or in tactics, he is known as one of the most brilliant tacticians in military history. Maybe he's not as famous as the Genghis Khans or the Napoleons, but he was a brilliant tactician on his own. But still... It's hard to believe that just because of John Ziska's leadership and just because John Ziska was innovative, that that was what made the difference and that was what closed the gap between their small band of Hussites and the all-powerful Roman army. So it's hard for us to believe that that's what, that's, that's what made them win the battle. Even historians say military innovations alone cannot fully explain the success the Hussites had over their vastly superior adversaries. This wasn't just them fighting uh, an army of slightly greater strength. They were fighting an army of overwhelmingly greater strength. So what made the difference? John Ziska said that it was his army's devotion to God. John Ziska believed that the greatest strength of the Hussite army, again, was not their strength, was not their tools or their weaponry, was none of those things. It was their devotion to God, their devotion to the truth. It's an interesting question to ask anybody. What is your greatest strength? We ask this, interviewers ask this, when you're wanting a job, they ask you, what is your greatest strength? And so, sometimes there's a lot of jokes said about, uh, sometimes you make yourself, you know, you're, never mind, I've, <laughs> I'm not going to follow that rabbit trail. Anyways, what is your greatest strength? 
answering this question, asking this question to somebody can reveal a lot about what they think of themselves, can reveal a lot about their personality. All of us here tonight have certain sets of skills and abilities, some of which we've honed and cultivated all throughout our life. And so when we're asked, what is your greatest strength? There's an answer that comes up to mind. Some of us, when we're asked what our greatest strength is, we say, it's, our, it's my intellect. I'm brilliant. I'm a genius. Or you may, you may not say it that way, but you may believe that your intellect, your critical thinking, your rationality, those are your greatest strengths. For some of us here, we may say that it's our, our physical capacities. We're strong, we're fast, we're athletic. Maybe that's your greatest strength. And for others, they might say that they have the ability to befriend anybody. They have that personality that is just friends with everybody, and that's their greatest strength. However, wouldn't it be something, if someone asked you what your greatest strength is, you were able to sincerely reply and say, my greatest strength is not my intellect, my greatest strength is not my physical capacity, my greatest strength is not my personality, but it's my devotion to God. John Ziska was able to confidently say that and mean it. Wouldn't it be something if we could do the same? Unlike intellect, unlike fitness, unlike personality, devotion to God is not exclusive to anyone. Some people are just born smarter than others. Some people are just born stronger than others. Some people are just born friendlier than others. It's kind of locked sometimes because God molds us and creates us in different ways, but being devoted to God is not exclusive to any one Christian. It's something that we can all claim for ourselves and make it our greatest strength. But we must actively desire and pursue it. But to foster that desire to pursue God, we must first understand why it's necessary for us to be devoted to God. What's the point? Why do we need to do it? And so before we get into Psalm 31, let's just open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to preach. It's always a, a great uh, privilege, Lord. I pray that you remove this wave of, of fatigue that's on me and give me the strength and enablement to preach your word. And I just pray that you would touch the heart of all of us here tonight through Psalm 31. In Jesus' name, name I pray. Amen. So let's return to our chapter, our, our text passage. Let's go to Psalm 31. The writer and the author is David. And once again, as we often find in the Psalms, David find him, finds himself in dire affliction. Many commentators believe that this psalm was written around the time in which his son Absalom was rebelling and trying to you know, usurp the, the, the throne of his own father. David's name was being stamped on with all the many rumors being spread by his own son Absalom. Grief and sadness filled his soul. Imagine being, you know, the king, and your very son is the one trying to take your throne and kill you and spreading false rumors about you. You would be filled with grief and sadness as well. Now, there's a great chance that we'll never have to face the exact same trials that King David had to go through. None of us here are kings. None of us here are queens. We don't have to worry about our, if our, of our future son or daughter taking our throne. But all of us are cut from the same cloth as David. We're all humans. We're all easily affected and overtaken by our emotions, caused by the, the difficult situations that we find ourselves in. We all go through hard situations and unique trials. 
that break our hearts and cause us to grieve. If I ask all of us here today, who's had a rough trial this year alone? And we would raise our hands six times, seven times. We all go through difficulties. For others, for some, it might be the loss of a loved one. And losing a loved one isn't just them dying. You could have had a childhood friend that you grew up with, best friends for 20 years, and you lose them. Loss of a loved one. Maybe that's the situation you find yourself in. Financial instability or being anxious about the future regarding finances. I would admit that sometimes I find myself in this situation. Looking at all the rent prices out there. I still live with my, my family, but that, the, that, that thought of stepping out and renting a place on my own and looking at and, and just hearing Pastor Tim and all the other assistant pastors talking about the, the prices of, of rent, it makes me never want to leave my house. But it's part of being an adult. You have to leave eventually. I worry about finance, financial things. Maybe for you it's bullying or mistreatment at work or at school. For, for being a Christian, you're being uh, persecuted. Maybe your trial is a long-standing family issue. Every time we come home, it's World War III, a mini World War III. There is no peace. There is no love at your house. Maybe it's family issues. Maybe it's a declining health. That's a trial that Pastor Turner finds himself in right now. A lot of these health issues just coming all at once. These are all situations that we may find ourselves in. And time and time again, through the history of the sermons that we've been taught, through the devotions that we've done ourselves, we've been taught what we ought to do when we come across a trial, a difficult situation. But I want to double down on this by studying David's example in Psalm 31. And through David's example, we can see the proper mentality that we need to have as we sail through one of life's storm. Now, follow along as I read verses 1 to 8 of Psalm 31. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow down thine ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock for an house of defense to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privily for me, for thou art my strength. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble, thou hast known my soul in adversities, and hast not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. Thou hast set my feet in a large room. At this point in David's life, David has developed an incredibly close relationship with God. He is what we would call and label as a mature Christian. He is no longer the, the baby Christian of before. He's had years of time to spend alone with God. Now, what do baby Christians often lack? They don't really lack passion. A lot of times, unfortunately, we're more zealous about God when we just got saved. But what baby Christians do lack, or newly saved Christians lack, is a knowledge of God. They have all the passion, but they don't really know everything there is to know about God yet. And none of us will ever know everything about God. But mature Christians have spent lots of time alone with God, have studied the Bible extensively, or they should have, and have heard loads and loads and loads of preaching for missions conference, for revival, for during Christmas, all and everything in between. We've heard lo loads of preaching. 
And a mature Christian possesses a lot of head knowledge about God, about who God is. We have a wide understanding of who God is. We can defend our faith even, knowing what attributes God has. And David displays this knowledge of God in these verses. In the the passage I just read, he recognized God's righteousness. He recognized that God is a God of truth. He recognizes that God is a merciful God. All of these things are attributes of God and they make up who God is. But he didn't just have an objective understanding of who God is. He had a personal knowledge and understanding of who God is. Through his experiences, he acknowledges that God is his strong rock. He acknowledges that God is his fortress, a wall of defense. He recognizes that God is his guide in life, that God is his strength, that God is the one who has redeemed him. These are all personal experiences of God working in the life of David. David knew God personally, not just objectively, not just through uh, what we are supposed to know about God, but he knew him like he was his best friend. Now, many of us, we can check this off in our checklist. We have knowledge of God. We fall in this category. We've known God. We're aware that God knows us. And it's been reminded to us again and again and again through preaching that God cares, that God is merciful, and that God protects. We have this knowledge of God, this head knowledge of God. General knowledge and head knowledge of God is not enough. We need to start personally getting to know God more. Getting past that point of a, of a stranger relationship. The foundation for our devotion to God is simple. Have a personal relationship. Truly know who God is based on your personal experiences with Him. David had the knowledge of God, and a personal one of that. But in Psalm 31, 9-13, we find the second point. And follow along as I read these four verses. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Mine eye is consumed with grief, yea, my soul and my belly. For my life is spent with grief, and my years with sighing. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity, and my bones are consumed. I was a reproach among all mine enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and a fear to mine acquaintance. They that did see me without fled from me. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side while they took counsel together against me. They devised to take away my life. The reason why I say the foundation for our devotion to God is being of getting to know him personally is because David, because of his personal relationship with God, because he viewed God as a friend, the greatest friend in the world, he knew that he could go to God with all of his problems, with all of his struggles, with all of his trials that he was going through. Look at how transparent David is. Look how open he is to, towards God. Now, I understand, God knows everything there is to know about us. All the minutest details of our lives, He knows. He knows everything we've ever said. He knows all the the biological features of our body. 
He knows everything that we will we'll be doing tomorrow. He knows everything about us. But at the same time, He desires for us to be transparent, to share our struggles with Him out of our own volition. Look at the words of how David, look how transparent he is. I am in trouble. I need help. My life is spent with grief and my, my years with sighing. My, my strength failing. I can't do this anymore, God. My strength is failing. I'm forgotten as a dead man. I'm like a broken vessel. We can go on and on, breaking down each of these phrases of David and analyzing everything David was going through in this trial. But those details are irrelevant. What is important for us to take away from this is this utter transparency before God. He bared all of his problems and all the sources of grief in his life to God. And he was able to do this so easily because he has an intimate relationship with him. Would you go up to a random stranger on the bus or on the, in the mall and then just start going off on all the things you're struggling with? Hey, buddy, I just met you right now, but this is what I'm going through. No, that's not natural. You wouldn't go to a, a, an absolute stranger and just start, just start telling them about all the things you're struggling with. It doesn't work like that. But would you tell all of your most difficult struggles to your best friend, to your parents, to your spouse, to your pastor? The answer is yes. We are able to share these things with people who are close to us. We don't share this, these vulnerabilities to random strangers on the street. We share this to people that we are close with. It's difficult to be transparent with God when He remains a distant stranger in your life. We are called to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yet there are many Christians who have a stranger-stranger relationship with Jesus. They don't really, they've accepted Him into their hearts, but all these years that they've been saved, they haven't bothered to get to know Him. You can't bear and, and cast all your burdens to God when He's a stranger in yours. Now another thing to note is that David fully acknowledges the trouble he's in. He doesn't try to hide the fact. He doesn't try to hide everything that he's suffering. He shows it all to God. There are many people who never acknowledge their problem. They never acknowledge the fact that their problem is beyond their own power. And so they never seek help. And this is a mistake that many unbelievers make with their problems, and it's a mistake that we can also make as Christians. Drug addicts and alcoholics, they don't seek help. Why? A lot of times it's because they don't think that their drug addiction and their alcohol addiction is a problem. They think that it is within their own power to control. But what commonly happens, what commonly happens is that their addiction becomes the source of their demise becomes the, the source of their downfall. Many rich men have, gone, have become homeless because they've let their addictions control their life because all this time they didn't think they had a problem. All this time they thought that it was within their control until it wasn't anymore. They never sought help because they didn't think they were in trouble. Very dangerous. As Christians, don't fall in this trap. Don't try to brave this world on your own. 
It's a scary thought to have to go through life all by yourself. I heard of a famous, uh, he was a famous figure, I guess, in, in, in entertainment, and he believes in Jesus. I don't know if he's truly saved, but nevertheless, he said that the reason why he came to Christ was because of the fact that there was a God who is willing to have a personal relationship with him. He felt like he was all alone in this universe, but there was a God, there is a God who is willing to have that personal relationship with you. And so he trusted in Christ. Don't try to go on life by yourself. Share your hardships with God, even though you know that he already knows about them. Being transparent towards an all-knowing God should be a simple task, yet we struggle to do so. Oftentimes when a problem pops up in, in our life, we tell our, the, the, the loved ones, we tell our family, we tell our friends, maybe we even tell our coworkers, you know, over, the, over lunch break. We're comfortable enough to share our problems with our coworkers even. But where's God? We're casting our burdens on men, women. We need to be casting our burdens to God. God wants to hear all of the problems you have. There's no such thing as TMI or too much information with God. Sometimes you, you, you talk to with a random stranger and they just they start, they start going off. You know, they, they don't really know how to pause. But it's too much information. I don't want to hear anymore. But with God, He loves to hear your voice. He loves to hear even when you're just sharing all your struggles and all your trials. He wants you to say that to Him. Because that shows that you trust and love Him. Now, let's look at our third point here. Psalm 31, verses 14 to 18. Again, follow along. But I trusted in Thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my God. My times are in Thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. Make Thy face to shine upon Thy servant. Save me for Thy mercy's sake. Let me not be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon Thee. Let the wicked be ashamed, and let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak grievous things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. David had a personal knowledge of God. This resulted in him being transparent with his sources of grief. But David isn't just saying all these things to God in order to complain, in order to blame God. That's not the point of why he's saying this to all of these things to God. What David is wanting is for God's help. He is telling God about all of his problems and about all of his trials, not to complain, not to say, God, this is your fault, because you want, but it's because you wanted God's help. He is crying out for help. I trusted in thee, O Lord. My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hands of mine enemies. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant. Save me for thy mercy's sake. I have called upon thee. David is desperate for help. Not only does he acknowledge his problems, but he also acknowledges that the only one who can help him get through his trial, this unique trial, is God and God alone. It shows in his desperate plea to God. God, help me. I can't do this on my own. I need you. He makes a desperate plea to God. He has total faith in God with his problems. Why? Because he is fully devoted to him. Looking through David's life, we can see that his devotion to God was his greatest strength. 
What is the nickname that we often give David? A man after God's own heart. Not many people can say that about themselves. But David was given such a blessed nickname. His devotion to God resulted in him becoming personally acquainted with the creator of the universe. His personal relationship with God results in him being transparent before him. And it's his transparency before him that allows David to cry out to God for help unashamedly. It's a domino effect. It's, you, need to, you can't just go to step three. You need to go to step one, step two, step three. I pray that we can all get to the point in our lives that it becomes habitual for us to directly go to God and cry out for help knowing that, it would, that only God can truly and fully deliver us out of our problems. It's not a matter of if troubles come in our life. It's a matter of when. When a new problem arises and when a, when a new trial comes, who are you going to call? It's a famous, I guess, slogan, I guess in the 90s, you know, if there's a supernatural paranormal thing going, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. But in this case, we have someone that is significantly greater than the Ghostbusters. Now many of us, especially with my case, when I have a, maybe a practical problem in life, one of the first people I call is my dad. I call my dad. The first time my car broke down in the mall, the mall parking lot, Daddy, can you call BCAA? I need, I need, a, I need a tow, I need a, a startup. And my daddy, he, right after he finished work, he drove to where I was, 30-minute drive, and he just waited there the whole time until BCAA came and helped me with my issue. Internet is not working. Daddy, can you reset the router pot? I can't unclog the sink or toilet. Daddy, can you try? I need practice for my road test. Daddy, can you help me? Our fathers naturally just become that person that we seek out for help. We, we always watch that Father's Day video, and that's kind of like the whole point of that. When, when a problem comes up, we call dad. We call out for help. Wouldn't it be amazing when we have spiritual trouble, when we have deep problems, that the first person that we call is our Heavenly Father? It's so natural for us to call our earthly father when we have problems, but wouldn't it be amazing when we face something difficult that the first, our, our, our instinct is to immediately call upon our Heavenly Father. Coworker is troubling you. You're being bullied in the workplace. Call, call God. The bills are starting to pile up with no way in sight to pay these off. Who are you going to call? Call God. No job for the foreseeable future, and no job means no money, no, no money to pay the bills. Who are you going to call? Call God. You're diagnosed with a serious illness and you're, you're, you fall into deep depression. Who are you going to call? Call God. Jeremiah 33.3, one of the greatest promises in the Bible. Call unto me and I will answer thee. You have some of those friends, you know. Hey, I, I really need help. You call them, three rings, no pickup. You call them again, three rings, no pickup. And they never pick up their phone. They never answer the text. That's not the case with God. Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me and I will answer thee. God picks up the phone to our, to our benefits. God is always available. The problem is never his availability. The problem is our inability to call upon God when we're in trouble. It's never about his availability. It's about the fact that we don't have that habit within us to call upon God when we are struggling. 
Be like David and call upon God unashamedly when you are in trouble. And our last point here, follow with me as I finish and read verses 19 to 24. My favorite portion of this chapter is these next verses. Oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he hath showed me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Nevertheless, thou heardest the voice of my supplications when I cried unto thee. O love the Lord, all ye his saints, for the Lord preserveth the faithful, and plentifully rewarded the proud doer. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. And as I've said, this is my favorite portion of this chapter. Before God could even show himself strong in David's life, before God could even answer the prayers of David, David was already rejoicing. He just prayed these requests, and now he's already rejoicing before God delivered. Now, in many cases, rejoicing early is a very unwise thing to do. We see this often maybe in sports. You know, the the, the team that's in the lead, they start cheering. They start celebrating. They start taunting. They start jeering the other team for already losing when there's still time on the clock. So they celebrate prematurely. And what happens sometimes? The other team rallies together, catches up, and... They, all, they celebrated all of that for nothing. They still lost the game because they let their guard down. But in this case, the reason for David's premature rejoicing is because the sheer confidence that he had in God. He was confident that God will deliver. A couple years back, we don't really do this anymore, but when the church guys used to go to Guilford, we used to play basketball. There's this thing called the cage, and it's kind of like a public basketball court. And I would always hate it when some of the guys would propose the idea of, let's just, let's play with other people. Let's play with random strangers. I, I personally hate playing with people I don't know. That's just me. And the reason why is because with people that you don't know, you never know if they're going to talk trash. When people talk trash to me, my, my blood starts to boil. and I'm no, I'm no longer having fun. Maybe they'll play too physical. They'll hit you. They'll elbow you. And I would always be nervous playing against the people, against people that I didn't know. And my coping mechanism all the time would be humor. I would just make a bunch of jokes, but internally I was actually very nervous to play with guys that I don't know. But there's a one player within our church that if he was on my team, I would, I would become a very confident guy. I knew that his presence on the court is going to, Assure us to a victory, most cases. It's Theo. <laughs> if Theo's on my team, he's just going to shoot and he's going to score. And we'll win the game. And I don't have to try as hard. When he steps on the court, there's a, there's a wave of relief that falls upon me. Right? It's kind of a, a, a silly illustration. But I felt confident that our team could pull it off if he was on the court. And I would play with more boldness. Because that was the confidence that I had in Theo. And forget it, if Theo and Lance were on the same team, easy W, easy victory. They had two scorers, and I just need to just run around and act like I'm playing, and I'll still win the game. <laughs> but there is confidence that I have in these guys when they step on the court. Are you confident when you're heading into a storm, 
Do you have that confidence in God, knowing that God is on your side? Because when God is on your side, guess what? What's the song we always sing? I'm on the winning side. So you, having God on your side, means that you are in the winning side. Maybe the trials don't play out the, the way we would want them to. Maybe it doesn't necessarily end in a, in a, in a beautiful ending or a conclusion, but know that God will make and work all these things together for your good because He's on your side. Even all of these trials that you don't know how you can possibly benefit from, God is going to bless you through that trial if you just trust in Him and place your confidence in Him. David learned to be confident in God because time and time and time again, all throughout his reign, God had answered his prayers. He knows that God hears his prayers for certain and he is fully confident that God will help him no matter what the trial that he's going through. As a teen, it was hard for me to really have this confidence in God because all of the things that I know about God and God answering prayers was from the stories of other pastors, from the stories of other Christians. And I never really had my prayers answered. Why? Simple fact. I didn't pray. As a teenager, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find a teenager who would faithfully praise every single day. So I didn't have that confidence in God. But as I grow, as I'm becoming more reliant on God for all of my needs, I, I'm building that confidence because God has answered my prayers. You know, I, it was a legitimate fear when the, the West Coast people, when the people who went to college, those, those were five of our teens who just went off. And I, in my, my mind, I was thinking, there's no more, there's no more youth group. What's going to happen to our youth group? Am I just going to preach to Brother Patrick every Wednesday? Is it just going to be me, Pastor, Pastor Tim, and Patrick, and Miss Myrtle? And, I, and that was a legitimate worry that I had. And so I think all the leaders, we started praying for teens, new teens, to come up and be more consistent in, in, in teen services. And what has God done? I've been blessed in these past few weeks to see teens just becoming more consistent in Wednesday, seeing new teens pop up on a, on a Sunday school service. Those have just been answers from God. God has heard my prayer and He answered. When I was looking for a new vehicle, I was just looking for something that would just be more fuel efficient, but God answered my, my prayer and He went over and beyond. He blessed me with a car that I, I definitely don't deserve and, he got my, and he, God used my brother to bless me. When I prayed, Lord, give me soul winning opportunities. I rarely go out of the house. I rarely talk to people. You know, I'm an introvert. I don't have anybody that I can really soul into. And over these past few months and years, in the only place I really go outside of, the, outside of church is the gym. But God has given me soul winning opportunities in that facility. People that I've befriended and people that I can share the gospel to, He answered. When I prayed to God for deliverance from grief and emotion, God delivered. He gave me joy even in situations where I, I shouldn't be happy and joyful. And so the more I ask God for help, the more He can show Himself strong in my life. And in turn, the more my confidence in Him grows. The more you pray and ask God for help, the more opportunities God will have to show Himself strong in your life. And when these answered prayers start to build up, when your prayer book is starting to get filled up with a bunch of answers to prayer, the more your confidence in Him will grow. Prayer warriors will always have more confidence in God than Christians who only pray sporadically, than Christians who only pray maybe before a meal, maybe at the end of the day. 
prayer warriors will always have more confidence in God. How much confidence do you have in God? Can you trust Him to help with the, with the grief that you're feeling? Can you trust Him with your family's issues that has no resolution in sight? Can you trust Him to help you with the mistreatment you face at work or at school? I see a lot of maybe trending within the young men, but it's, kind of, it's like this message of encouraging young men to just suffer in silence. You know, bear all of those. That's what, that's what, it, that's what it means to become a man, is to bear all of those, those, your problems, all by yourself. That is the testament of a real man, is a guy who can just be silent and endure. But you don't need to suffer all alone, young men or otherwise. We don't need to carry the weight of all of our problems every single day. We don't have to be limping throughout every, all of our life because we are so burdened with all of these things. We are told to what? Cast them to God. Cast our burdens to the Lord. Place your confidence in Him. Our devotion to God ought to be important and it ought to become our greatest strength in life. We'll go through all sorts of difficulties and all sorts of trials. And a Christian who is devoted to God will understand that he is someone that we can trust to handle all of our problems. That he is someone that we can place our confidence and hope in. So let us be of good courage, knowing that God will always be here for us to strengthen us in our time of need. And as we come to the end of our night of this sermon, I want to leave with an illustration Once, there was a skilled tightrope walker who decided to perform an awe-inspiring act of faith. He strung a tightrope across a wide chasm between two cliffs. The crowd gathered and anxious and curious to witness this extraordinary feat. This man stepped onto the rope high above the ground, and with each step, the crowd held their breath. He began to perform daring stunts, such as walking blindfolded, even pushing a wheelbarrow filled with heavy bricks across the road. The crowd marveled, marveled at his balance, marveled at his focus, marveled at his unwavering confidence. He then turned to the audience and asked, do you believe I can make it back to the other side safely pushing this wheelbarrow again? The crowd enthusiastically shouted, yes, we believe you can do it. The tightrope walker smiled and said, Thank you for your faith in me. But now I need one of you to get into the wheelbarrow and demonstrate your faith. The crowd fell silent. Just moments ago, they were enthusiastically yelling, you, you can do it! But now, no one was willing to step in and volunteer into the wheelbarrow, even though they claimed they had faith in God, uh, faith in this man. In that moment, the tightrope walker made a profound point about faith and devotion. Believing in something is one thing. But true devotion is when you're willing to step into that wheelbarrow and trust completely, even when it seems impossible. Likewise, our devotion to God calls us to take that step of unwavering trust and commitment. It's not enough to say that we believe that God is able to handle our problems, we must be willing to surrender our problems to Him fully, to step into the wheelbarrow of faith and let God guide our path. Thank you for watching the message today. 
We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word. Thank you.